For October 9th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 484, beating your blade runners into plowshare runners. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're always glad to hang out with you and to talk about our favorite uh, movies, TV shows, music, uh, books that we're reading, video games we're playing, whatever's on our mind. Uh, it's always improved when we hang out together and have a chat about it. I'm your host, Matt Rather. Uh, with me today are my friends, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Matt. And uh, we are talking about Blade Runner uh, 2049. Now, don't worry. You don't have to have seen the previous 2048 Blade Runners in order to appreciate (laughs) this one and to know uh, what happens. But I know that when you see it, you're going to be going to iTunes or Amazon Prime or or, uh, Google or whatever your video store is, uh, and you're going to be watching, you're going to be queuing up and renting all uh, 248 of them. And at that $6,000 or $7,000 effort of renting and watching all the... No, this is the uh, this is the not exactly sequel, uh, I guess sequel, but sort of follow up um, homage kind of remix album by uh, Dennis Villeneuve, the director of Arrival, to the Ridley Scott, um, you know, classic sci fi noir uh, Harrison Ford movie from 1982. I believe the original was 1982. But uh, uh, don't worry if you haven't seen it, and and judging from the box office numbers that this movie put up, you haven't seen it. Uh, we're, you know, there's plenty there's plenty to talk about in, in this film, and though we will have spoilers, I wouldn't say that it's, it's, a, it's a film where the plot twists uh, are the primary, the primary attraction. Uh, like Kingsman 2, I think we might have different opinions about this, this film. <laughs> Film, but I think I think we might almost be reversed in our uh, <laughs> in our esteem for uh, for Blade Runner twenty forty nine. All right, uh, before we hop into that last episode, we celebrated the ninth anniversary of the weekly Overthinking It podcast, and and uh, and that was uh, exciting, and we added, we put out the call for anyone who wanted to send us a voicemail, send us a, uh, a voice memo via email, or send us a written email message um, to do so, and we have, uh, we have um, a few of these. So let's open up the mailbag and dive in. That's something we haven't done in a while and probably should have been doing uh, all along, given the level of profound insight and good humor enjoyed by overthinking, uh, overthinking it listeners the world over. Here are some of your messages on the occasion of our ninth anniversary. Uh, Sarah Grace writes in, Happy anniversary to all the overthinkers. Been listening to the Overthinking Podcast since episode 216. Happy birthday short round. Ah, a classic. A classic happy birthday short round. I'm sorry, I can never stop do stop interjecting my my own thoughts into people's uh, letters, and it's rude. Um, and I, I should stop, and I'm going to stop now and continue reading. Uh, 
I really love it. It's the first podcast I listen to. To this day, I am proud of having begun the Game of Thrones double dactyls, though my favorite is Pete's where he finished on transcontinentally missing the point. In high school, like most American high schoolers, I was taught English literature. I remember specifically reading Catcher in the Rye, among other books that failed to make an impression on me. <laughs> I'm not certain what the takeaway was supposed to be. If it was supposed to, if I was supposed to come to like Catcher in the Rye, the class was a complete failure. If, however, the class was supposed to instill in me an appreciation for the process of literary criticism, it was also a complete failure. Giving high school students high literature and expecting them to engage with it at all is a big task, and using that as a basis to teach them more exacting process of literary criticism is like the TFT podcast of pedagogy, alienating and confounding. <laughs> Thank you. And if you aren't on board with the process to begin with, it's not likely, uh, to, you're not likely to pick it up along the way. Perhaps the most confounding thing about high school literary criticism... Oh, I think this too, Sarah, by the way. I, I agree with you with what you're about to say. Perhaps the most confounding thing about high school literary criticism is that we're expected to participate in the process but never given any good examples of what literary criticism was supposed to be. Like trying to get someone to bake and never letting them eat a cookie. <laughs> I didn't know what was supposed to be rewarding about the endeavor. Entered the Overthinking a Podcast when I finally had an example of what literary criticism could be be directed towards media I was already invested in and performed by entertaining people. It made literary criticism accessible uh, in addition, uh, accessible to me. And uh, your podcast, in addition to being entertaining on its own, gave me tools that I could use to extract more meaning and more enjoyment from all kinds of media. For that, I'm grateful. Thank you for all the work that goes into making the Overthinking It podcast. Well, thank you, Sarah Grace, for such a nice, uh, such a nice email um let's just do a quick round the horn and uh say say books that that are on high school curricula that you hate or hated at the time that are uh that are actually good or maybe actually good but were just really badly presented to you uh the scarlet letter <laughs> that's mine you stole mine <laughs> oh, sorry. i wrote an alternate ending to the scarlet letter where dimsdale faced off against an army of ninjas because i thought the ending in the book was so lame <laughs> so i'm not allowed to say the scarlet letter no, okay no, you fine can say, you can say the scarlet letter i mean i can go on to books that i think are not necessarily bad but are are often very very badly very badly taught uh john Knowles, a separate piece one that is uh not necessarily bad but is often very badly taught uh pete what, what do you think oh gosh um I'm trying for, for some reason a book that jumps out to me as a missed opportunity. I'm not saying the book is bad or badly taught. Uh, do you, were you for and this is like way back. It's like elementary or middle school. Were you forced to read The Great Gilly Hopkins? Um, I was not. Ever, Go on. Oh man, the Great Gilly Hopkins. I think is an underappreciated uh, children's like young adults children's book. Uh, it was made into a movie, but I feel like I was forced to read this book in school, and we talked about it, but I felt like it, it ought to have been so straightforward and accessible that our conversations about it should have felt a little bit more on the nose. I feel like <laughs> when you're reading, like, um, oh, gosh. Uh, you know what? Also, like, To Build a Fire is another one where it's like everyone reads that little short story, and then it's like, oh, it's man versus nature, man versus self, you know, all this other stuff. But you never really kind of dig into the idea of, like, what it feels like to freeze to death and sort of what you're symbolizing and what you're talking about. 
I don't know. I I just maybe other than uh, other than the Scarlet Letter, maybe what I really didn't like about these uh, literary critical pieces is that even the situations, even the situations in literature that you should be able to identify with as recognizable to yourself, are presented in a way that is tedious and alienating. <laughs> and uh, and that was I think the thing that I'm trying to say, which is that a book like The Great Gilly Hopkins, which I feel like I sort of identified with on a personal level, I don't remember the conversation of it of it engaging me at all. And I feel like that's a missed opportunity, even if I was probably like. 13 years old when we read it or 12 or something like that yeah so anyway mark you go ahead i i got i got thrown because usually i get to go first when Blinky's not on and i'm not used to having mine stolen by somebody <laughs> else so, turn um, play. I, i'm probably not giving enough credit to some of the high school english teachers that uh did do uh, a decent job of teaching this material but uh i think it's probably safe to say that virtually all shakespeare is presented poorly to middle school and high school students, and yet is always on the curriculum. Um, but I will use this as an opportunity to give uh, wholly deserved praise to the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Yes, there is a Shakespeare Festival in Alabama. That is to say, like a, an institutional theater company that yeah, puts on Shakespeare. It's a, and it's all a, stuff. Mark, it's a theater company of national stature. It's a really good. It's a really good one regionally. Yes, yes, yes. People should be aware of it because Alabama is not full of just like Roy Moore. And other horrible things like that, um, and the places like that really uh, put on fantastic performances of things like Richard the um, Third, uh, and also non Shakespeare like uh, Anne Frank, which I talked about at length in the previous episode of the Overthinking It podcast, the one with the marbles and the horrible high school and disrespectful middle school students. Um, so yeah, Shakespeare uh, not taught well, but performed well at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Huh. Uh, uh, you know, in high school, I actually liked to go to like the fiction section of the Barnes and Noble or the Borders, which was a thing back then, and find not exactly literary fiction, but like slightly sub literary <laughs> fiction, contemporary fiction, um, in trade paperback. So, like, not mass market genre fiction, not Tom Clancy, and not you know, uh, I don't know what's a who's a um, Who's a writer who uh, not like the remains of the day either, just to, to you know, use a, a recent Nobel laureate. Um, but uh, this kind of this kind of thing that was just sort of, you know, it was like the law and order special victims unit of uh, of fiction. It was, you know, the lurid a lot of the time, not particularly demanding, uh, but had, you know, relatable characters and things like this. And I, I used to read this stuff and love it. Uh and and it's complete. It's almost completely fallen away. It's it's been supplanted, I guess, by prestige television, um, which you know takes the place of uh, that. I think a certain kind of like mid level uh, mid level literature would take in my life. Um, I don't know. Did you Pete? What did you read for pleasure in in high school? I mean, almost exclusively science fiction. Huh. Oh yeah, I, I read so much, like middle elementary school in the middle school. I read so much Isaac Asimov, and uh, I think I had one summer where I read thirteen Michael Crichton and Tom Clancy books, <laughs> <laughs> like just a stack, just a big old stack. I do remember reading Jurassic Park the book in one sitting, which was like eleven hours or something like that, uh, in a car ride. Yeah. So I was. I mean, we we lived in kind of a, a bit of a golden age of mass market paperbacks that were about almost as fat as they were. I actually, we probably had better dimensions than cube, the great, yeah. cube shaped books. <laughs> Not quite as cube shaped as the generation of Shogun, but pretty close. <laughs> the pillar, um, the pillars yeah. of Earth. 
<laughs> yeah, a lot of science fiction, a lot of fantasy, uh, a lot of Tom Clancy, a lot of Michael Crichton. Yeah. Uh, not John Grisham. I didn't read crime or thrillers. Uh, I mean, except for military thrillers. But a lot of uh, historical fiction. Colleen McCullough. Uh, she was. She wrote the Grass Crown, right? Was that her name? Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin's a little earlier, but uh, but yeah, that, that's sort of what I read. I I loved me some some sci-fi. I even read like Star Wars books and things like that. The but, uh, um, oh sure, I yeah, it was read, Isaac Asimov. Yeah. I I did. I read all of the the Star Trek: The Next Generation novelizations. I've talked about them on the podcast before. I loved Douglas Adams. I loved like comedy sci-fi, and I you know multiple times, like just over and over, I would finish the Hitchhiker's Guide books and and start them over again. I had them in different media too. I had them on tape. But I, I here's here's a little here's a little story before we you know extract ourselves from this rat hole uh in sixth grade because i went to a a fancy la school um Someone knew someone who knew someone who knew uh, someone who had made Dances with Wolves, and the film. And so we got Michael Blake to give an author talk to parents at my elementary school and the sixth graders who were given uh, mass market paperback copies of uh, the novel Dances with Wolves and, uh, you know, about three weeks to read it. I read it in... in I don't know, a weekend or something, a day and a half about. It's not a, it's not a long book, and, and I was already a reader at that point. And, uh, and the principal of the elementary school, in her intro to Michael Blake, said, well, we handed out the book uh, three weeks ago to our sixth graders, and I know that some of you are almost finished with this smarmy, patronizing kind of smirk on her face. And and uh, that's when my anti-authoritarian streak was cemented forever. Uh, because F her. I, I read that pile of pages in, uh, in you know, 11 hours, like, like, like Pete. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's push on uh, into the first of a few voicemails and voice memos that came through to, uh, to the Overthinking It hotline. Hey, Overthinkers, this is Vishal at uh, 32 degrees, 47 minutes north, 96 degrees, 48 minutes west. Thank you for all the entertainment. Things like Rather's Donkey Effing Conundrum and, and Fenzel's. Uh, if people aren't yelling at you on the internet, you're doing it wrong. Those those things have become part of my pop culture vocabulary. So thank you for that. Continue the party. I hope uh, you guys get another nine or ten or whatever many years and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Wow, Vishal, thank you for keeping up the tradition of using the uh, what do we call them? ICBM coordinates. Yeah, <laughs> for for listing your your location on this. Uh, we promise not to unleash the overthinking a drone army on you. We have one now, by the way. Um, and, and thank you for the kind words. The, the thing that struck me most uh, that you mentioned, and also um, Sarah's email, uh, the word entertainment, right? Uh, you know, this on this podcast, we do aspire for ideas and importance and thinking and overthinking. But ultimately, it is um, very much an entertainment endeavor uh, to have fun amongst ourselves and to communicate that sense of fun to others. And I don't know about you guys, but um, my podcatcher is stuffed full of too many current events and, and politics podcasts. And there's just a lot of kind of, you know, awful things uh, out there in the world. And um, sometimes you need a break from that. And sometimes that break involves donkey effing, steel girders, so on and so forth. <laughs> oh, steel girders. That's yes. a deep cut. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Pete, you're right. If they're not yelling at you on the internet, you're doing it wrong. I, I feel like we've presaged a lot of unfortunate things. <laughs> if you go back and listen to the old episodes. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it was a, it was a kinder, gentler time of sort of blogs back then in the the mid two thousands when we started. I mean, the truth was there if you looked for it. <laughs> Some just, people just didn't like to look. All right, <laughs> all right uh, and uh, coming in next over the voicemail transom. How about this? Oh, this is uh, Ian. I uh, live in Southeast Missouri, and I just wanted to say I found you guys my freshman year of college, um, and I actually just got tired of some articles I was reading online that were overthinking things. And I was like, man, there has to be a place that just overthinks things. Um, articles where you're overthinking it. And I Googled it and I found you guys. And uh, I went through some tough times in college. Um, it was really hard to find some people to talk to, um, find some people I related to. And I was able to make these new friends, my friends from the internet on overthinking it. Um, I still listen to you guys every morning on the way to work, on the way home, um, kind of helped me figure out where I am and who I am in my life just because I've had these awesome friends from the internet who helped me develop my intellectual ideas on things. Um, and I've watched way more movies than I would have if I don't listen to you guys. So thanks for all that you do. I really appreciate it. I'm glad all that effort that I put into SEO in the early days paid off, right? Because uh, when you Google overthinking it, there we were. Uh, and it, <laughs> even It would be kind of a shame if you Googled overthinking it and something else came up first. Well, the, well, Mark, we were in that situation for a minute because a, a uh, I, I won't say the publication, but I will say that it is a large uh, scientific publication by Americans um, that uh, <laughs> started a pop culture and science blog. And Used our name, uh, and I like I had to write a get a lawyer letter, and uh, we actually now own a trademark, a registered trademark on overthinking it on the the phrase overthinking it uh, in certain connections because of this. Um, but something that Ian says uh, is something that's really that's really important to me. Like over the course of nine years, we've gotten a couple. Uh, I mean, one you know, if if we had gotten one, Dianu, right? Uh, uh, but we've gotten a handful of emails where people have said that during rough times in their life, the overthinking it podcast helped them. Um, and the sense of the sense of friendship that we all share, uh, was something that was, was sort of helpful and, and even sometimes kind of healing for them. And that like, you, you almost can't do better than that for putting something out into the world. You know, overthinking it is first and foremost a group of friends. And uh, if we are still together after nine years, it's because we really love hanging out together. Um, I look forward all week to, to doing this podcast with, with these guys and the rotating cast of fellow podcasters that, that we have. And, uh, and we look forward to coming together. That's why one of the, the enduring features on the site is the, the think tank because we just like to talk to each other, and if we can, uh, if we can communicate that sense with you, if we can include you in that, welcome you into it, and share it with you, um, we've done something pretty cool. All right, let's uh, let's go down into the negative latitudes for my namesake, Matt from Australia. Hello, overthinking it. My name is Matthew. I'm coming to you from GPS location, negative thirty-seven degrees, fifty-one minutes. 9.7 seconds latitude and 145 degrees 12 minutes 56 seconds longitude so hello from melbourne g'day congratulations to you on on nine years of podcasting i think it was around about episode 50 you had a, a question and answer session and i i think i have the title of 
being the very first person to have a question on the podcast, or at least on, on that episode. And I asked the question about how do you actually overthink? And and John gave a really great answer. It was about not not providing the answer to a question, but just an answer, you know, that somehow contributes to the conversation. And uh, this has actually been surprisingly meaningful in, in my life. It's a transferable skill uh, that's applied in, in a number of different ways. And I can honestly say that I'm a better person for having listened to your podcast over these years. And, and, and these types of uh, input has, has really helped me to... To, to shape the conversations that I have with other people. Thanks very much, Matt. And that does mean a lot to me to hear that kind of uh, discussion of it. One of the things that I worry about a lot in this particular day and age is how specialized people are and how specialized knowledgeable people are about the knowledge that they're specialized in. And this could be something that might be true whether in your professional life or your personal life in relationships. People tend to, rather than have the similar sort of broad general body of knowledge, to have really specific uh, knowledge about specific things, often of which they're kind of prevented from talking about. Uh, by an employer or by circumstances or by the fact that other people don't know what you know or don't care about what you care about and have their own cares. And I feel like it's really important in that kind of setting to be able to pick up a ball, contribute your own piece to it, and pass it off to somebody else. And also to be able to pick up the ball from somebody else who's contributed something of their own to it and then add what you have to say to it too because nobody has the full answer. And it's, I think that's true of comedy. I think it's true of drama. I think it's true of some of the ways that you see people make collaborative art these days. Uh, and it's just, you know, you, you want to have that sense of satisfaction as a commentator of having said what you feel and think is the best that you can do. And I like to say that one of the darkest secrets of overthinking it is that we're right a lot of the time, which you wouldn't think, but <laughs> it's the case sometimes. Um, but more than that even is just, you know, pick up the ball and run with it wherever you can. You know things that we don't know. Uh, and so add to it, right? Carry it, carry it forward. Carry the torch. Uh, that's, I think, the best that we can all do in our kind of uh, hive world that we live in where so many people fit into the machine. Everybody is, of course, uh, utterly essential and, and utterly replaceable as, as our little cogs in our giant machine. But, uh, but you know, turn it the way you can. And, and that, I think, has a certain beauty and value to it. Mm. So thank you. Well, uh, thanks very much. Uh, let's do uh, thanks very much to everyone who wrote in. Um, speaking of living uh, in the hive and everybody being part of the machine. Hmm. <laughs> Go See on, what I Matthew. Did there? See what I did there? <laughs> wow, you served that up, right? You served up a, a, a pass that I could hit. Um, that That's a sports metaphor. I'm, I'm not sure it makes sense, uh, strictly speaking. Served up a pass that I could hit? Yeah, that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that like volleyball? Could, could we like shoehorn that into like a volleyball thing? You set the ball so that I could spike it uh, like, a, uh, like a severed skull. Into uh, no uh, into Blade Runner uh, twenty forty nine. Um, I thought. I mean, I I appreciated a lot of things about this this film. Like to me, to me, it didn't drag, and that's. I think that's almost the most controversial thing I can say about it because it was two hours and forty five minutes or something like that. A very long, uh, very long uh, summer action blockbuster. But uh, Mark, you, the first thing you said about it was that you felt like it was a little. You felt like it was a little too long. You felt the passage of felt the passage of time uh, too much as a viewer in in the movie. So, like, what uh, uh, what was your experience watching it? <laughs> 
don't misquote me. I think I used the words dreadfully paced. <laughs> Felt dreadfully slow. The word glacial might have come into my uh, commentary. Sure. Um, I it, it just took its sweet time doing what it was doing. And I completely understand that those part of the artistic project, right? Just long language shots of the scenery, long language shots of Ryan Gosling's back as he reacts to something, long language shots of, of, of everything in this, uh, and, you know, and, and in doing so communicates these very interesting ideas around um, consciousness, freedom, slavery, so on and so forth. Um, I, I felt like it could have done all of that in a more economic storytelling fashion uh by the by the two hour 45 by the by the one hour 40 30 minute mark or so i was really feeling it um thinking that i've been here for a long time and i want to get this over with um that's my chief complaint on it um and and i think it also speaks to like my uh, devotion maybe is the right word um really sincere appreciation for the the format of the movie the specific creative challenge of getting in there and getting in and out and roughly as close to two hours as possible um, and telling your complete story. And if you're going beyond that, you need to have a really good reason to do so. And Blade Runner didn't quite have as many good reasons for that and and suffered a bit as a consequence. Hmm. Uh, Pete pacing and storytelling. No, not at all. (laughs) Oh, you mean what did I think of the pacing? (laughs) I didn't mind it at all. Uh, the pacing. Oh, well, this was a, if we were going to do a question of the week this week, I was going to have it be about going to the bathroom during movies. Right. Because this is a movie <laughs> with its constant rain. There's like so much precipitation in this movie. And I mean, rain and snow and sand blowing around. And it's also almost three hours long. I mean, not since Titanic made water run for two and a half hours <laughs> did uh, did I feel like there was a movie that's so guaranteed that you were going to go to the bathroom during it. Sure. Uh, so I didn't mind that. And just I just a be- think- just a brief uh, just a brief interlude about that. I actually saw this movie with uh, our guest podcaster uh, Zach Johnson from Kingdom of Loathing, um, and creator of Kingdom of Loathing uh, and uh, West of Loathing, and um, he was in town for for Indiecade, and we ended up seeing Blade Runner together. And uh, it was at one of those theaters where there's like a greeter, you know, assigned seats, a bar, you know, it was the afternoon. So we had some like 16 ounce coffee drinks from the, like the barista in the theater. And, uh, they announced the time someone greets you and says, welcome to the movie where, you know, it's, it runs two hours and, and 45 minutes. And I put my coffee down and was like, I'm gonna be right back and ran out to the bathroom <laughs> to just get a like emergency bathroom visit right before so that I wouldn't have to do it, uh, uh, during the film. And then we hightailed it. Like we sat through as much of the credits as we could and then <laughs> hightailed it afterwards. Uh, because when you get to be, when you get to be our age, that, uh, you know, that, that, that urgent bladder is, is no joke, but, but anyway, all right. So, so, uh, uh, urinary issues aside, Pete. Yeah. So urinary issues aside, I like the meditative pacing. I like the use of the visual elements to sew up a lot of different sorts of symbolic packages. I thought that was all really exciting and great and interesting. The thing that that for me affected the pacing was when I felt like the thread was lost between the different symbolic worlds 
and and by symbolic worlds, I almost mean there. For those of you who don't see the movie, which I'm assuming is a lot of people watching this, there's a lot of s- shots in this movie of somebody who is silhouetted in space, and the space has a very specific and very highly detailed aesthetic to it. So it might be Ryan Gosling silhouetted against a window in an imitation of an old bachelor's uh, kitchen, or it might be the super fancy uh, female executive robot walking down an Egyptian. An imitation Egyptian staircase with water rippling all around her. Or it might be like walking in the desert, or it might be walking under a bunch of pipes. That was probably the one where it finally figured it out. It was like, oh, this is a bunch of pipes. This is just variations on a, very, on a theme of people in silhouette in different environments. And I could tell that, that each one of these sorts of environments hooked in in certain ways to certain sorts of vocabulary of symbolism throughout the movie, and that there was symbolism that was overarching through various story arcs in the movie. But I was a little bit turned off by what I felt like was an insufficiently robust intersection of the different symbolic symbolic worlds, um, or at the very least, not enough of a, for, of, a, of a sense within the form and structure of the story that it was okay for these things not to unite with each other. Yeah. Yeah, like that might have been it, which is that I don't mind incoherence. After all, I really liked Kingsman 2, which like makes this movie look like, you know, uh, the the inventory system at a Costco where it's just like everything is very organized. <laughs> like this pallet goes up here and this pallet goes up here. And Kings, Kingsman 2 is like a Marshalls where it's like, ah, you know, go next to the underpants. You'll probably find the the one chair that we're selling in that spot. Well, that's I mean, uh, that's it. That's it. It's an interesting thing. Like, is this movie is this movie about is it about piles of things? Is it about, uh, you know, water washing away? Is it about like barren landscapes? Is it about dirty landscapes? Is it about cluttered landscapes? You know what I mean? Like the, the thing about the, the, um, I, well, I, I have a lot to say about, about this and its relationship to, uh, to the original, but, uh, I too, like you, I appreciated, um, uh, I sort of appreciated the meditative pace and and did not uh you know didn't mind it as as a as a viewer and kind of just sort of settled in just sort of accepted what it was and and settled in another thing I appreciated about this was the the beauty of the photography, which I think especially given like this you know this is a film that must have had a, a pretty big c g i budget and and other films with comparably big c g i budgets are are not anything that I would call beautiful necessarily Kingsman actually is a probably a decent example the marvel comic book movies or the um you know more to the point the the dc justice league universe movies because they are uh, perhaps a little more dystopian uh, at least aesthetically um just the beauty of the photography and the way you know, the way the visuals relate to each other, especially, you know, I didn't see it in 3D. I will always opt out of 3D, uh, given, given the option these days. Um, mm-hmm. but I, uh, I saw it on, you know, digital projection widescreen and, uh, I, I just feel like that wide, you know, uh, widescreen cinematography is something that I was in my like early days of, of watching, uh, old movies and kind of educating myself on, on American film history and stuff like that. 
that was just it, right? Like the, how you use the wide frame cinema scope, you know, this sort of the horizon line stretching seemingly forever across that, that rectangular frame. And, and Dennis Villeneuve is a director who has thought a lot about this, you know, because when, uh, when Amy Adams interacts with the, the heptopods or octopods or nonopods or whatever they are, the, um, they were heptopods. Heptopod- they had, you were right the first time. Yeah, okay, you're adding you feet to them, man. So <laughs> many feet getting added it's, but uh, it was you know it's it a movie that deserves a couple extra feet i think it deserves credit for it well the, it did the, more with less <laughs> it was a nonopod quality movie with, with <laughs> that made do with heptopod quality aliens uh, yeah i mean seven feet that's like uh, two of those is a ballad stanza am i right um <laughs> so the uh uh Right, the the uh, the kind of visual interface through which they interact with the heptopods is a widescreen movie screen. You know, it's this rectangular uh, sort of opening against the um, against the against which the kind of the inky circles are are projected. And so, like, and I also appreciated like when there was action in the brief, you know, the brief moments where it wasn't just sort of rising tension. I appreciated a kind of coherence to the way that the action was shot, or when there was any kind of like fast motion or fast cutting there was a kind of and i'm I, you know i'm not a i'm a musician i'm an auditory learner i'm not a visual person right and like so I, I feel like a visual illiterate a lot of the times and i especially feel like a visual illiterate watching the kind of like barrage of shaky cam uh that characterizes action cinematography these days and i appreciated the my ability to follow the the kind of affordances that were given to me to follow um what was happening uh, in the action, right? I was never, it was, a, it was a film where I was I, sort of often in ambiguity about a lot of things, but, but never really in uh, ambiguity about the visual, um, never really in ambiguity about like who, who was standing where in, in the environment. Uh, you know what I mean? And you'd feel like that would be like just a basic, basic component of the grammar that everybody would, would understand like sort of subject, verb and object, but it, but is something that is muddied, uh, a lot of the time by, uh, by action cinematography. So like the, the look of it was something that, that I really appreciated and, and, uh, found a lot to admire in. Yeah. And to revise something that I said, I guess it's not that the parts of the movie aren't connected. It was that they were connected, and I didn't like the way in which they were connected. That's really what it was. Yeah. Is that no, they are all connected because they're all connected around this biblicalish story, this post paradise lost story, and and that's sort of somewhat sort of tied to the noir story, but not really. And it's all about strangers and familiarity and different sorts of frameworks of familiarity and manufactured familiarity, which by the way, Kingsman Two is also about, but in ways that are I think more robust in terms of interpreting the twentieth. The 21st century and what happened in them, uh, but yeah, but yeah, it was like I love the visuals, I love the depth of uh, the symbolism, I loved the attention to detail, I loved the widescreen, even just the lines, the shape. There were so many cool shots that did cool negative things with color, where the color would kind of drop out and the shape would really jump forward. And and, and I don't expect that level of subtlety for a movie like this. And I really appreciated it. Just the shadows and the and the sort of glimmering of light along surfaces was all just very expertly and artfully done. And in a movie that's largely concerned with the images of people and the images that people hold within themselves that define them, it was cool to have different ways that images themselves were deconstructed in front of you, like live. 
uh, and I thought that was also pretty cool. The sort of rods yeah. and cones felt like they were getting yanked in opposite directions. <laughs> this movie. Should we dive into the biblical aspect of things? Um, I mean, that if, to me, if, like, if, was if one we're not going to do it, really who will? Me. Right? If it's not us. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Do you want to start, Mark? (laughs) uh, I'll I'll just throw out a few different ideas here, and then Pete and Matt, you guys can pick it up. I think um, the thing that resonated most for me was sort of a a Moses type of story, right? Uh, The replicants are slaves, and a special magical child will deliver them out of slavery. Um, uh, Also supporting this more Old Testament reading of the story is the fact that Rachel, right, the the female replicant from the first movie who was the mother of the special child, um, uh, could tie into the biblical Rachel who was barren but through the grace of God was able to deliver uh, children and whose name also means you. Um, which I think is, by the way, is a reference to the Philip K. Dick title, The Android's Dream of um, Electric Sheep. E-W-E-U. Yes, you. Yeah, you. Um, uh, but also, Not the kinda... soldier boy, you. <laughs> it could also be that uh, you, you are the sheep, like you, yeah. Pete, and you, Matt. Um, but also speaks to this idea of a flock and the twelve tribes of Israel and all that kind of stuff. It's also, um, by the way, right? Like the baby gets sort of put in a basket and sent down the river and ends up in Pharaoh's household. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, so that I that I think there's that, that is at least a pretty good starting point um, for the biblical ideas here. Uh, Pete, I'd, be, I'd love to hear you expand on that, but also kind of like talk about how it does or doesn't um, work well with the noir aspect of it. Right. Because well, like the first the, the first noir aspect at all. Yeah. The first Blade <laughs> Runner, for those of you who haven't seen that in a long time, is really straight up. A, a great example of noir, you know, the the, the protagonist, the, the the blurring between good and evil, and the the mystery that's unraveled, and all those kind of stuff. Um, but Blade Runner twenty forty nine has some aspects of that, but then is sidecarred with all this religious stuff. As well. well, it's I, I mean, I, yeah, I would not call this a film noir, right? Like uh, maybe aesthetically, it has some like chiaroscuro moments, like it has that kind of dark, moody, atmospheric uh, lighting and cinematography from time to time. But the other, but there, there are a couple things that that to me make this. Um, I mean, I, I guess it is a detective story, like a lot of films noirs, but. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, but uh, sorry, Pete, I didn't mean to hi- hijack it. Oh, it was okay. going, it was going to you to talk about to talk about the Bible. Yeah, so preach, brother the, Franzel. <laughs> so this is one of those movies where they'll throw one line in there, and the line will have huge symbolic importance. And if you know what the line is, you're like, oh, I get it. So, uh, which I like sometimes. Uh, and in this movie, I did enjoy it when it was happening. But then over the course of the movie, I was sort of like, oh, that's not, they're not going to cash it out any more than that. So the line I'm talking about is that when Kay, a.k.a. Joe, a.k.a. Ryan Gosling, the Blade Runner, finds the record of the, of the orphanage, the man and the, the boy and the girl in the orphanage, he finds that the girl died of what's called Galatian disease. And it's like, oh, she died of Galatian disease. Now, you may think, what is Galatian disease? Is it, is it an actual disease? I don't think so. Uh, I've Googled it, and I can't find anything. But I do know that when I hear the word Galatians, I know it's a book of the Bible. And I know that any movie where Jared Leto is allowed to talk about the Bible for more than five minutes means that the author has read the Bible a lot. <laughs> right? Like the screenwriter. Because why would they make Jared Leto talk about the Bible if it weren't something that, that was on their mind? It's not like Jared Leto brings that to the table in all his roles. Certainly it wasn't there in Suicide Squad. Uh, but um, so Galatians 
is a book of the Bible. It's one of the epistles of Paul, and the letter of Paul to the Galatians. I have never encountered the word Galatian in any context other than in a reference to the letter of Paul to the Galatians. And the letter of Paul to the Galatians is about how Christians should get over the difference between Jews and Gentiles. That that Jew that Gentile Christians have a role in the sect of Christianity, which up until this point heretofore has been a Jewish sect, and you know as it's been growing in this particular era, you guys should all sort of learn how to get along and kind of be part of the same movement. Uh, there is in fact a line. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the book of uh, the Epistle of Paul to the Galatians. I'm just looking at random New International Bible version online, but. Uh, the illness, the Galatian illness, uh, here it is. It says, um, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? This is like full of Blade Runner stuff, yep. right? Pulling your eyes out, uh, you know, the, the person, the illness of Paul. Paul, first of all, is a Gentile who became a Christian, which in his, is in of itself kind of problematic. We have walls in this society, and you stay on your side of the wall, and we stay on our side of the wall, and, and it would be a bomb that would blow up all of civilization, right? It could be the end times, the breaking of the world, if we were to allow these two groups of people to mix. Paul's illness is blindness, that he comes to, right, he's struck blind by God, then he gets his eyesight back, and then he goes and he preaches the gospel to everybody because he's, he's figured out that this is what he needs to do. Uh, but this is all related to this idea of Deckard and Rachel's child being a savior, but them also kind of having blindness about who they are and what their role is, and this idea of who is going to accept this child into their own. This child is going to be hated by everybody, but no, lo, this particular group that uh, has David Batista in it is going to welcome in, which is not the Guardians of the Galaxy, but very well might be. It's going to welcome in this child, and, and now we're all going to figure out that we all have to follow this new well, this new true, true North Star, right? They, they are, uh, they are guardian. Doing. They are guardians of the galaxy. <laughs> They're just not the guardians of yes. the galaxy. Yes. They are they are some guardians of a galaxy, <laughs> um, and and the and, the, and I, the thing, I don't say this because I'm saying this is like a proselytizing Christian movie because it's not. Uh, but at the same time, it does speak to an idea about the world in which the world has saviors, in which saviors are real. You know, and um, that is not the world of the first Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's not the yeah. world of noir, yeah, oh. and that that's that's the difference. I think in noir there are no saviors. I mean, you might get Philip Marlowe to come through and ha- be sort of this avenging angel who has a conscience, but he's not like the savior of the world, and he he is not he's not like people don't come to him with like, oh man, there's this really huge problem where we need to fix poverty in Los Angeles, <laughs> right? And and like we need to cast off the bonds of oppression. No, it'll be like, hi, there's a dispute and in inheritance between me and my father. We're both morally bankrupt. Which one of us? Are you going to yeah, shoot and at the right. climax of the story. <laughs> yeah, like, and by, by the way, we're both like sexual deviants and we're exploiting yeah. the, you know, I don't know, the, the whoever yeah. we employ and like all this sort of thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
Whereas uh, in this in this story, there's like a there's like a savior, and then there's these two factions, like the the oh, the big bearded king who wants the savior for himself, and then there's like the the one eyed rebels who want the savior for themselves, and it's sort of about which way is the world going to go, and how is the world the world's progression. Anyway, Matt, you go ahead, you you jump in. Well, yeah, I, uh, I would say that one other thing that's relevant here is that before he was Paul, uh, he was Saul of Tarsus and was like a persecutor of Christians, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. the the kind yeah. of the nascent uh, post-Jesus Christian movement um, was this persecuted minority in in that part of the world, and and uh, he was one of the people going around doing it. And so, like the and uh, when he like got you know knocked off his horse by the Holy Spirit on the road to Damascus, um, he went from being a persecutor to being uh, to you know, um, and, and it's like uh, it's like Drax the Destroyer says earlier in the movie is uh, like how can you kill your own kind you know and uh uh, ryan gosling says you're not my kind we obey you know uh we are the good replicants um but the uh you know uh but he comes to realize that that no the kind of the message of of he's cured of his galatian disease right like he (laughs) he comes to realize that uh no we're not we're all one we're all one kind of thing and that and so he's i mean i think of him as a and like the idea that the the memories of implant are implanted like the one thing that to me was legitimately a twist uh was that he's not the he's not the savior right which is which is i think great in this movie that like we're going to spend all this money on Ryan Gosling, right? We're going to amp him up to sort of full charismatic brooding beautifully photographed movie star status and he's not really the hero. You know, morally, he's not really yeah. the uh and we're also going to communicate uh, this notion that he's going to be the hero with a lot of like sound and fury and 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 visual signifiers, you know, the big Hans Zimmer score swelling and him having emotions and all this kind of stuff. But nope, not really. I that actually turned me off a little bit. It felt like a, a bit of a jarring bait and switch, I think. But um, again, I, I appreciate how that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> Just well, can't quite do it yeah, for me. Right. That that that. But they're willing to spend. I mean, like a little bit. It's they're willing to build up all that capital and then blow it right because it's the yeah and and spoiler uh kill him off yeah, no, spoiler alert right? moses dies before he gets to the promised land also <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can i also say that are we saying that the moral of this movie is that you are beating your blade runners into plowshare runners I don't know that we'll be able to top that. The the uh, Blade Runner and a lot of noir, uh, the original, the 1982 Blade Runner and a lot of noir is about anxiety, and um, I think it's about in the case of a lot of films noir a post war anxiety. You have films like Mildred Pierce, which in the guise of a female centered melodrama is explicitly misogynistic. And as you know, Mildred is found out by the male law at the end. Of, you know, spoiler alert for Mildred Pierce. Uh, and her man like puts his coat over her shoulders and escorts him, escorts her out from the darkness into the sunset, uh, into the sunrise as the sun is rising after a long night. Of confession in the police station, um, there are working women scrubbing the floors uh, 
in the final shot of Mildred Pierce and as Mildred is being like re-co-opted into the patriarchy and the message is clear women what the economic freedom and the sort of agency that you'd enjoyed during the war while the men were away is over back onto your knees uh, back to work we are reestablishing the order that we had before the war but the, but like you in order to make a statement that that is uh, that is that unequivocal that is that powerful you have to be pretty anxious about what would happen if you didn't um you know, send these orders down, down from the mountains. And like, uh, in, in 1982, I mean, I think there was a, uh, I think there was an anxiety about the Soviets and an anxiety about the Japanese that kind of coalesce into an anxiety about collectivism, individuality versus collectivism, um, that, uh, that sort of explodes in the, in the, not explodes. That's the wrong word. That 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 is sort of um, spread out into the Blade Runner uh, mise en scène, right? Like there, there's so yeah. much more time spent in the 1982 film um, about uh, of like fighting through crowds of people on the street, right? And like being down there. And it's actually it's some of the best stuff in in the movie. Is not when the story is moving forward. It's when he's just like in the environment, you know, eating his noodles or you know, trying to chasing the first replicant that he shoots and trying to, uh, you know, find her in the, the pedestrian, uh, area and things like this. And, and just in the way, uh, the way the streets are laid out, the way the, the, uh, landscape is, is hemmed in by these harsh slashing vertical lines of the, uh, of the, the tall buildings, you know, the, the mix of languages, which I think the new film gestures at, but does a lot less organically than the 1980 film for uh, 1982 film did um like there's just this there's just this incredible uh fear about the dislocation um the dislocation wrought on the individual by uh losing losing uh, like paradoxically losing a collective national identity and having it uh become this kind of polyglot wasteland and um the uh the threat of kind of communism of everybody being the same or of like this sort of fear of what a japanese dominated culture might look like uh that is um you know, of like, we're all, you know, we're all more devoted to the, uh, to the collective than we are to our, you know, cowboy individuality. Uh, and, yeah. and th- that's what the robots are about. The idea that like, you can kill the robots, but you can't kill the people, but they're indistinguishable. And like one, one of the, the Down Abbey moments in, uh, in the original Blade Runner is when Harrison Ford is asked, have you ever killed a real person by mistake? And he says, no, he says, but that's gotta be a risk in your job. Job, right, like, and he's he's not even willing to entertain it. And as like, whenever anybody, and this is true in life also. Like, uh, I feel like I feel like our our uh, mailbag, uh, our responders, our voicemailers and emailers wrote in about like the the kind of the applicability of overthinking it to. Um, <laughs> to uh, areas of their life. And so I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you an overthinking it life hack right now. When someone really, really strongly insists that something is true, must be true, uh, should be true, is true, they're terrified that it, in fact, is not true. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and and that's, uh, that's, the, that's what's going on. I mean, to me, that's what I got from my, like, this latest encounter uh, with uh, the final version the the ridley scott edited version of blade runner yeah to 
build on one thing you said yeah. is I feel like it's very characteristic of noir that it is post-war. That there has to be this idea of there having been a war that has changed the psychology of the people that are involved. Right. And one of the things that felt least noirish to me about this movie was Jared Leto's plan to empower replicants with the capacity to reproduce and then the idea that they're going to have a whole bunch of babies and then those babies are going to become this giant army and that with this giant army he's going to be able to take over the entire universe and i feel like this is that what he was going for i i just i caught bits and pieces of like economic dominance but you're talking about a literal army like no 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 he was he was first of all he was speaking in like highly symbolic terms the entire time but i think he was speaking of like a broad displacement of humanity but also a broad displacement of the empty space between the stars just sort of sending like sending out these ro- these replicants everywhere to all corners of creation i don't think it's a stretch to say that that's the way he thinks about it and just having them fill in all the gaps and and i feel like if Have, having really them like- be be fruitful and multiply fill the earth yeah. and subdue it yeah, and I, and I just, I just for really, fun and profit. Yeah. <laughs> and and I just like the way that I can tell that it's not post-war is that he hasn't considered the possibility that one, like twentieth-century man with a machine gun could kill all of them, right? Like like Jared Leto needs to, needs to take a trip to Flanders Fields and realize what happens to millions of people who are sent out on a mission of power in like real modern society, <laughs> right? Like I can't, I, that was all I was thinking about with his character late in the movie was like, he is not even aware of the idea of Flanders fields where like in Flanders fields, you know, the poppies grow between the robots row and row, you know, that, that with holograms and in the sky, the uh, robot owls bravely singing fly. But it's like, they don't understand this sense that you can actually try to send out a whole generation and that it might fail. <laughs> that like that like you could send a whole generation of people out to on some sort of great crusade and it might fail and they all die or even if it succeeds they might still all die and you're left in the aftermath of it trying to consider what the meaning of all of it was and i feel like noir is very concerned with that <laughs> this idea of like a lot of the detectives from from the noir stories are veterans who came back from France and who have sort of swallowed deep down a certain amount of terrible human suffering that they endured then and through their sort of masculine vigor, which comes without too much of a moral endorsement, but with like a little bit of a moral endorsement, are able to kind of endure as, you know, quote unquote, men of action in this kind of framework. But this idea that Jared Leto is going to like marshal the armies of the angels, I mean, like, so Matt, Paradise Lost, right? <laughs> the unsurpassed, unsurpassable, greatest work uh, in, in the English language uh, gives us two any, different any, ideas. Any language ever, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> gives us, like, I think multiple different ideas of celestial conflict, uh, and it frames celestial events with multiple different uh, symbolic brush, uh, symbolic frameworks, or paints them with multiple different symbolic brushes, as you know, using the magical word or to combine them. And one of the ways that it does this is it it frames the war in heaven between the fallen angels and the angels of God as a 17th century military conflict with, like, cannons and guns, uh, and in which there is, like, terrible fire and brimstone and loss of life and people just being, like, and angels just sort of being, like, if not annihilated, then certainly, con- you know, cacophonated in, in a sort of vast and kind of incomprehensible uh, noise of war that takes place. And then they also have this sort of poetical way in which the sort of spirits, uh, you know, they, they do their sort of spirit thing, their divine thing, but it also paints conflict, even the conflict in heaven, 
as a kind of chaotic and cacophonous and futile sort of war with this sense of like modern war is, is a thing that has terrible loss and futility associated with it. Which, which is a, a sentiment that has been current since the Greeks, at least in Western yeah. culture, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that's also part of it is that there didn't seem to be anybody in this story who felt like the idea of a great crusade to bring replicants into the forefront and liberate them was at all going to be a futile waste of life. And and that might be the way in which I felt like this movie failed for me the most, is that there should have at least been the viewpoint. I guess Robin Wright Penn felt that way. Or Robin Wright, sorry, I shouldn't say Robin Wright Penn. Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. Robin Wright's character, the cop, sort of felt that way. But it wasn't that way. It was more like, I support the existing social order because the failure of the social order would mean a war. But there was no idea of, like, we're going to lead this great big war, and you know what's going to happen. A whole lot of people and a whole lot of replicants are all going to die, and we have no idea what the thing afterwards is going to be like. Yeah, and and Uh it also didn't seem like the status quo was all that worth preserving, right? Like, no one was trying yeah. to make a, a positive argument that, like, uh, what we have right now is pretty great and we should be careful before we, uh, before we throw it all up, right? So it was, it was really kind of a, uh, it was really kind of a no win, uh, kind of a no win situation. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. They could, so many people thought they could win and it was a no win situation. I just thought that was interesting. It's interesting, and and I think it was a way in which the movie kind of fell short for me a little bit. Well, it's yeah, the the. the 1982 film does a little better in terms of like exploring the idea of the robots as slaves, right? Like they yeah. th- that have to do dangerous jobs, uh, which in the in in the new Star Trek Discovery universe are done by conscripted prison labor. But uh, the in in um, <laughs> you know 1982's Blade Runner, or you know in America, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the post 13th Amendment America, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, and that that like uh, I guess that is one way in which Blade Runner has us you know morally beat is that it, it you know it at least tries to create machines to do yeah. these things. Um, yeah, and, and I'm not let's say that wars of liberation are necessarily bad. I'm just saying that they're not that simple as they were in like biblical times. No, they, they even, involve, even then they weren't. They so. involve great suffering and, and loss of life. And it's not all, yeah. you know, even if the, the history written by the victors is, is uh, triumphalist, the lived experience of, of those things is, is pretty awful for all concerned all the time. Um, and that's, uh, you know, yeah, it's that, that sense it was missing. It was missing that. And, and I, I think that's because Pete, I think that's because the, um, the the film's heart was not where its heart was purported to be right the film's heart was actually the the big dislocation uh that this this film was um anxious about i think is technologically enabled isolation rather than mm. being some kind of rather than being a war uh you know rather than being like the ecological disaster of the great blackout which you know conveniently enough lost all the records making detective work more difficult like uh you know all those things it wasn't it and all all of this kind of elaborate scaffolding symbolic uh uh allegorical scaffolding that the, the film wanted to kind of pile on um wanted to kind of build up and actually uh speaking of scaffolding the um 
the orphanage, all the the staircases and stuff uh, in the like converted warehouse of the orphanage, uh, a reference to the Bradbury Building, where the climactic yeah. uh, the climactic uh, sequences of of the 1982 film take place, uh, which is a real place that you can go see in downtown Los Angeles, um, but is is like uh, you know kind of a neat and it was it was full really of of little knots to uh, to the older film like that, including the water projected on the walls and and uh and things like this but um like it's it was a movie about it was a movie about a small existential kind of man versus self conflict that was acting as though it was about like a a a war for a war for heaven and yeah and that's the thing that i think is um I, I think that's the disjunction because like you're pointing out like something didn't didn't quite connect. And I think that's the thing that it was. Yeah, that's because the most interesting. Thing, so I want to ask you guys a question because you guys are a little more classical music savvy than I am. Ryan Gosling's cell phone ring or rather his like the, the chime that plays when his robe, his AI wife, when his Alexa shows up. Uh, his his uh, Selma from Time Tracks to make a really deep cut that no one's going to care about shows up. Uh, a joy, right? Yeah. Is that the magic? Fl- is that from the Magic Flute? Was the no? Isn't that playing, right? Isn't that Peter and the Wolf? Is that Peter and the Wolf? Oh, is that maybe? I hope I'm remembering. Or no, some spring something spring something about spring. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you know what? I didn't clock that, but you're you're right to uh, you're right to identify yeah. it as probably important. I would love it if yeah. someone could well actually ask in the comments. Yeah, because so I feel like uh, Joy is I think the most interesting part of the movie for me. Yeah, and and Joy's relationship with Joe, uh, which is funny because you know that Joy gives Joe his name, but it's her name. And this idea that you know robots are this humans made in our own image, and and uh, that that we have Alexas that create us in their image, and and this whole sort of recursive. So here's I want this is my understanding of the relationship between Joe and Joy, because it's a little bit tricky, uh, and and I think it relates to and and I was also particularly shocked that it didn't seem to connect into the main plot in any way. No, that right, Joy, like that I, the, yeah. the software only uh, artificial consciousnesses don't matter in the same way that the the hardware slash software artificial consciousnesses uh do right yeah yeah exactly i mean mark you know what i'm talking about right what which uh, unpack it oh okay so so okay so so joy is let's i want to unpack joy a little bit so joy is introduced as an alexa as like a google home as a Siri, where where Ryan Gosling comes home and part of the conditions, part of the sort of operant conditioning he goes through that keeps him as a compliant and obedient human humaniform robot is that he has this artificial companion who is, who conducts these manufactured algorithmic sorts of conversations with him when he arrives at home. And uh, then they're supposed to provide him with comfort in much the same way that his memories provide him with comfort is, is how it seems to be initially introduced, reinforcing Matt's idea of the, of that this is a movie about technological isolation and, and, and it connects to the Philip K. Dick idea of the difference between real life and artificial life being the capacity for empathy, which is sort of communicated 
did through the translation of the book into the noir movie that comes first. And then that kind of transfers into this movie, where uh, Joy is not actually a real person, uh, and she's not even really a robust AI. Although we then enter into a part of the movie where it's not clear whether Robi- whether Joy is a robust AI or not. She might be. Uh, we, would, we would expect from the way that she's introduced that she's from the cloud, because if that's the way that technology for us works, that Joy is able to respond to Joe in the way that she does because she's hooked into some sort of network that has access to tons of information. The reason that this is given live by the fact that she is not exploited by any of the major players in the story, despite the fact that she is an unsecured connection to the literally most important information in the entire world, right? Uh, And that they are willing to literally break into the police station, murder the police chief, and use her computer before they think to file a a subpoena with Amazon to, like, ask if the guy has, like, any secret information on his files. So, So this leads us to think that for some reason Joy is this weird combination of what we would expect a contemporary home assistant to be but also a kind of 80s-style piece of software that he bought and that he stores locally in his own apartment. So, But then there's this big revelation about Joy that happens late in the movie, which is that the Joy product is a generic product that everybody has, that everybody can buy, and it has the same face, and, and it's the sa- it looks like the same person, and the tagline is, everything you want to hear. Right? And that's what Joy is about. And then you realize, oh... Joy's relationship with K slash Joe is that Joy learns from interacting with K slash Joe what K slash Joe wants to hear about himself and about his life and about the world. And and over time, by by creating this memory of him, is able to provide him with this experience that he wants. And, and over time he learns Joy learns what he wants, but it's all reflection. That that it's all like algorithmic reflection of his loneliness and the nature of his loneliness. So the idea that she figures out that what he wants is to have an idyllic version of her projected onto a prostitute, like for that's a great commentary about terrible relationships, which I think great good movies, great movies always have great commentaries about bad relationships in them. <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> because they tend to come if you go by the lyrical ballads, right? It's like excess of emotion. But but there's this idea that joy is this boondoggle. And and that's why I thought that it might be the magic flute that's playing, but maybe not. Uh, but but it's one of those like narrativized classical music pieces. I can't identify which one, which has some sort of overarching sense of sort of what the story ought to be, and kind of is is sort of pulling him along, and he's allowing himself to be pulled along, and is enabling this thing that's pulling him along to sort of create. And th- and that it's her, it's her who convinces him that he is the chosen one, because he wants to be the chosen one, and he's not. And that relationship was sort of poetic and beautiful and interesting, and then and then she dies, and I felt like that was unfortunate because there was a lot left to do with her character, and a lot left to do with their relationship, and it felt like it ought to be important. Yeah, uh, in the end of the story, right? So, because it wasn't, yeah. yeah, because it wasn't, it was, it didn't really know what it had, right? In yeah. that, and like I, I thought the joy, the scenes where they're interacting at home, and where she being incorporeal is kind of like intersecting with him, occupying the same, like the projection is occupying the same physical space, like all of this stuff. I think is is really interesting. It's something that I hadn't seen. Uh, the sex scene with the prostitute with the two sets of hands, also something that that I haven't seen quite in that way. Like it's pretty cool. Uh, it's a pretty cool visual presentation of a new idea and very very often you don't get new ideas and that's you know it, it, it owes a lot to her um to be fair yeah. uh, but 
Sure, yeah, it was doing it. It did advance. I agree with you guys. It, it, it had presented a lot of interesting ideas there, but it was ultimately cut short. And it, it, it that was a very frustrating aspect of the movie, how it was so disconnected from the broader um, salvation plot. Uh, that the what is it called? Celestial warfare. Um, yeah. <laughs> she, she wasn't. Yeah, she wasn't. Yeah. She wasn't engaged in that and yet really could have obviously been, been used for such purposes. She also seemed to have an agenda like she would sort of hack things on her own when he wasn't looking or at least like look through files, if not hack them. But I guess it was because she figured out that's what he wanted. I guess it's interesting to think about the scene where he gets the emanator. I love how happy she is. You bought another product from my, the company that makes my products. I love you so much. <laughs> And then uh, and he gets the emanator and there's that weird moment where they walk outside and the rain is falling and the rain appears to like she flickers in the light and in the rain and the wind and the rain appears to form droplets on her hand. And it's not clear at that moment whether the emanator is in some sort of Star Trekian way giving her physical corporeality, um, but we know it isn't in, in retrospect that she's just a hologram the entire time. But it's interesting to think that what Ryan Gosling wanted was for her, for the emanator to make her real, and so she figured that out from interacting with him, and then or also probably from market research, and uh, and then made herself look as if the emanator was making her real because it was what he wanted to see her do because it was what he wanted for himself, uh, and it just it was just sort of this interesting recursion of the sort that is in the original Blade Runner, like like the. Um, like the really weird sexual scene in the original Blade Runner, where basically Deckard rapes Rachel, uh, right? Like, uh, I mean, that was a, so un- that, that was so uncomfortable, right? Like that, oh, yeah. it's, you can't watch really anything at all. You can't enjoy anymore. Well, I mean, it's not a, it's not, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's a loss that we see that for what it is. Uh, I think because, because what it is, is that Deckard, so in the original Blade Runner, there's a scene where Rachel is in Deckard's apartment for her own safety because she is freaking out because she just found out she's a robot. And this also means that there is a death sentence on her head. So she comes to Deckard for explanations and safety and as she, and Deckard propositions her for sex and, or Deckard, yeah, he, he like makes a pass at her, right? And then she leaves, but he blocks her exit, yep. and she, he like demands that she tell that she say that she wants him to kiss her. And the reason that is interesting is because she's a robot, and uh, so Deckard is telling her to tell him what she wants. And the question is, is she real or is she not real? Yeah. And if she's not real, how does this matter? And then that. And I would even say begs the question because it is kind of circular reasoning that is this the way we think about real people? If you think of somebody that is sort of a uh, – if you frame and, – and this is really – when people talk about objectification as like someone in a bikini or somebody in a, in a tiny swimsuit, this is objectification where you literally consider somebody as an object and not as a person. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's complex and it's three-dimensional, but it's very much objectification wherein Rachel becomes a object of sexual satisfaction for Deckard, uh, which is yeah, part of I why mean, this movie doesn't really work as a love thing. Just uh, to bring, just to bring uh, Emmanuel Kant into it, she becomes a means rather than an end. And that's, yes. what, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about objectification. Yeah. And the idea of the complexity of what this act means if she isn't a real person raises the question of 
well, when we think of people like this, we aren't really thinking about them as real people. We're thinking about them as reflections of our own desires. And, and to an extent, this movie goes on to say reflections of ourselves and of our own needs. Like this person exists in order to be a vessel of satisfaction for my needs. Right. And, and shouldn't we be, be highly suspicious of the level of comfort that that seems to provide in story to Kay? Uh, right. And I think I think that the movie does go far enough to lead us to think that this is like horrible. But I just I really feel like that deserved to be more part of the climax of the story and what it was all about, rather than the idea that Amelie is the is Jesus's mom well, or is Jesus. Right. That in, Amelie is Jesus. <laughs> that Amelie is Jesus. Right. Like, yes. but that, uh, yeah, a little bit like if you could, it's, a, uh, you know, if you could kind of construct this is the, the science fiction thing. And like a lot of things, uh, it was done ridiculously but very well by Douglas Adams uh, in the restaurant at the end of the universe where he comes up with the only ethical dinner you can have which is an animal who is delighted to slaughter itself and and have itself be prepared and served to you Uh, and like comes out (laughs) the animal comes out and has a conversation with you about which cuts you would like uh, before it it you know (laughs) nips into the back and shoots it shoots itself right like that that if you could if you could do this, would that in fact would that in fact be better? And Joy sort of takes it. I mean, I feel like the the maybe this is me giving it too much credit, but kind of but kind of making it uh, making it a robot and having uh, you know kind of foregrounding the the aspect of robots as slaves. Like it, th- that's the sort of scene that you could like like you're not leaving this apartment and pushing the woman up against the wall and things like that. You actually really want it, don't you? Right? That kind of uh, like hyper rape culture stuff is. Totally normal from movies. It's all over movies from from a certain era. And I oh, think yeah. it, it makes it strange to have it be to have it be a robot slave, right? Though though maybe this is me just trying to salvage some sort of some sort of like moral insight for, for the film Blade Runner, which is a film that I like. But um I think like this I think twenty forty nine goes further still because the idea the idea is like, well if you could if you could actually get program something to want autonomously those things that you would most wish that it wants right would that if you could get the animal that you want to eat and that wants you to eat it uh and will kill itself on your on your behalf and and you know be butchered and served to you like that that uh you know is that is that in fact an improvement over the way over the way things are now or is that just not you know, is there no, is it, uh, is it joys all the way down? Um, yeah. or, you know, uh, as a, you know, a slightly more reserved person might say, emanator, I just met her. No, that's, oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. You were doing so well, Matt. You were doing so well. It, it might be time to retire this podcast. <laughs> it's not called execution. It's called retirement. <laughs> All right, let's retire. Let's retire this episode. We would love for you to uh, weigh in what you thought about um, 
Blade Runner 2049 uh, in the comments. Thanks very much to uh, to Sarah, to Vishal, to, to Matt, and to Ian for uh, getting in touch. You can, you know, hey, mailbag, voicemail, phone line still open if you want to make a voice comment on uh, Blade Runner, if you want uh, something that we've talked about, 203-285-6401 or uh, email, send a, a voice memo to, uh, to podcast at overthinkingit.com. Pro tip, don't use a headset. Uh, the headset microphone rubs against your cheek and makes uh, makes weird sounds. Uh, hold the phone like a slice of pizza uh, in your hand in front of you, <laughs> and talk into the uh, talk into the atmospheric mic uh, and and make your voice recording that way. They actually have uh, they have pretty good noise rejection, pretty good ambient noise uh, filtering on the the. Um, external microphones on on phones these days um 203-285-6401 podcast at overthinkingit.com if you want to email uh some writing or a voice memo we'd love to to hear from you and we'll see you in the show notes we'll also see you next week uh on the next episode of this podcast uh, because we are not retiring it yet no no until then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. And you guys can't see this at home because this is in video, but there has been a malfunctioning Elvis hologram playing the entire time, like right over my sh- – it looks amazing. It just believe me, it looks amazing. But it's a, it's a darn shame that you can't hear it singing Hunga Hunga Burn Love because that would really bring this whole thing full circle, I think.